0: This is one of those times where I wish I could encourage you to come to both services. Normally, I don't want to require being here from eight to one, but I've had the opportunity now, and I may lose count to be able to let, let's see, two call to worship[s] and now two, so five out of the six songs that these ladies have prepared and led us in worship with have been tremendous. What a joy! And and if you were in Discipleship Hour, you'll understand why I'm saying this word. What a gift that you have given to us to be with us today. Thank you, ladies, for serving the Lord, serving uh, the church, and serving the family and the friends of Laura Overcast, serving her memory and honoring her so, so well. We're grateful that you are here, and we're grateful to be able to uh, come together today. Would you pray with me as we ask the Lord to open the eyes of our hearts? We're about to come before his very word. It's a precious time, very important time in our worship service. Paul said to Timothy that all scripture, every, from Genesis through Revelation, is breathed out, is inspired by God, and is useful for our lives. So it's God's speech to us. This is God's personal address to you. So I can't exhort you in the most important way possible to pay attention, to be listening. I don't know what, you know, I want to make sure I'm humble enough to, I have no idea what God wants to say to you this morning, how God wants to meet you, how he wants to either challenge you or comfort you or reveal himself to you. But I do know that um, life is hard and there is no getting through without God and without the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is our time in worship where we get to come before his word. The psalmist prayed that you would open the eyes of his heart that we may behold wondrous things written of him in the law. And I want to pray that, that you would illumine our minds and our hearts, that you would, that you would take what could be sleepy, what could be uh, closed off, what could be kind of not hearing, maybe not, you know, who knows where we're all coming from today filled with fears or filled with doubts or filled with disillusionments or, you know, we may be anticipating something, we may be anxious, just kind of a sense of, as the lady saying, weary, and burdened. We wait upon you and we ask you, Father, speak to us through your word. Holy Spirit, may you be alive and in our midst, enabling us to understand exactly how it would apply to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been going through And we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. So if you have Bibles, I would ask you to turn, or the words are printed, projected for you here. We're going to read the end of the seventh chapter of Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 7, verses 31 to 37 says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, "Ephaphtha," that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And friends, this is the very word of God. We all have a vision of the way things ought to be. We all have a a picture, if you would, of what our ideal life would look like. I'll tell you a quick story of growing up with my father. My fondest memories with my dad were playing sports or watching sports with him. I mean, he inculcated that vision into me. Uh, At a very early age, there is a reason, and I won't repent of this. I talk about the New York Yankees and the New York Giants. That vision was given to me by my father at a, well, I guess I wasn't a whole lot shorter than I am today, but at a very early age, I was certainly taught, and my fondest memory, we'd throw the ball around or we'd shoot hoops together, and he always coached my Little League teams and the teams, so he was always coaching me, and I remember how he told me to implement this vision. It was real simple. He would say, Jeff, keep your eye on the ball. I would try to do that. Probably didn't succeed a whole lot. Even now, I'm older, so my sport that I play, no more basketball or baseball or that kind. Now I like to at least swing a golf club and play at golf. And what am I trying to do? I remember my dad's work. Keep your eye on the ball. That was a simple vision. You know, God has a vision for his church also. And there are many ways to articulate this vision. There are many ways that we could spell it out. One way that God himself, Jesus, spelled out his vision is after his resurrection, before his ascension, he met with his disciples. And he said to them, he said, here's the vision. He says, I want you. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Or maybe a more proper way of saying it is as you are going, as you go from here and you're living with your family and your Back to your career as fishermen, as you're doing what you do, as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, training them, equipping them, work with them, so that they will obey all the things that I have commanded you. Now, a more, I'll call it contemporary way, but it's the same message of going and making disciples. I happen to be fond of a writer, his name's James Hunter, and a PCA pastor, he used to be the pastor of Trinity Presbyterian in Charlottesville, Virginia, his name's Greg Thompson. And they talk about what's called faithful presence, and they say the vision of the church with Jesus, when he said, go and make disciples of all nations, they basically were saying the church, okay, the presence of God on the earth, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the church is to be the faithful presence of Of love in the world and every word of that is important faithful because we are to be faithful to the scriptures faithful to the message the gospel message that Jesus himself has inaugurated and given to us the doctrine of the faith we're to be faithful to that true to that and then presence if Jesus has been now ascended into heaven which he has that's a real true historical fact How is God present in the world today? If Jesus is in heaven and you can't see him, how do we experience him? How do we see him? How is he present in the power of his spirit applying the word? And the answer to that is through the church. I like how one particular church put it when they were describing a missional church. They said a missional church is one that lives out the reality that Christ's presence presence in heaven is distinct, but never separate from Christ's local presence on earth, mediated by the Holy Spirit and fleshed out in the body of his church. The church is to do, embody the gospel in the midst of the world as Christ's presence in the world. Faithful presence of love. Think about it. What is God? According to 1 John chapter 4, God is love. So as Christ is present by the power of the Spirit through the church, if we say God is love and Christ is God, Christ is love. Therefore, love is presence. We are the faithful presence of love in the world in the midst of all of the various absences of the world. And there are all sorts of absences. After this service, in a little while, you are all invited to come at two o'clock. We're having a memorial service. You know what we're doing? We're going to be the faithful presence of love in the midst of Laura's family, her friends, her loved ones. You know what we're going to do together? Yes, we're worshiping our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but we're doing so by being the body of Christ. We're doing so by grieving together. We're doing so by crying together. We're doing so by laughing together. We're doing so by sharing stories together. That's what the church does. The church is the faithful presence of love in the midst of all sorts of absences. And in the passage we're looking at this morning, this account, this part of Mark's sharing, remember we said Mark's at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we see Jesus being faithfully present And ministering the gospel, what we could call signs of ultimate reality. For the gospel is ultimate reality. The good news of the kingdom of God is ultimate reality. And Jesus is bringing signs of ultimate reality to a man who experienced significant absences in his life. When we ask the question of the text, what do we learn from this passage? about signs of ultimate reality, we'll discover there are two things. Two brief things I want to explore as we look at this text. One is our need of ultimate reality, and second, the promise of ultimate reality. Look with me at the text. It says, then he returned from the region of Tyre. What was he doing? Tyre was up by the Mediterranean Sea. It was Gentile country. Remember, he was at the house of the Syrophoenician woman, and so he finished there And he was coming pretty much southeast at this point. He went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. And he went to the region of the Decapolis. That's a region east of the Jordan River. East of the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. And he was there. And they, and we're not told who the they were. But they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. In other words, couldn't hear and couldn't be understood. So in other words, had a difficult time communicating, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And Jesus, taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed. And he said to him, "Eho, that is, be opened." I want you to think about this text, and I just want to compare and contrast a couple of things with the text we looked at last week with the Syrophoenician woman. They both, the Syrophoenician woman and this man, end up coming to Christ. They both have an encounter with Christ, but oh, how different, so different they are. And we're reminded that what matters most is not how we come to Christ, how we turn to him, how we trust him, how we surrender to him, but that we turn to him. That we come to him. So, in other words, it's not the quality of your faith. It's not do you have a strong faith, a great faith, a good, it's not the quantity of your faith. It is the object of your faith that matters. I mean, just compare these for a second. Think of the woman for a second. She had a need. Her little girl, her little daughter was convulsed by an unclean spirit. She was desperate. What did she? She was bold. She burst in. Jesus didn't hold out an invitation to the party and say everyone... She was like, I don't care if I'm invited or not. I'm breaking down the door and I'm coming in. And this man, his trajectory is completely different. His encounter with Jesus seems almost accidental or passive. The text simply says they brought Jesus to this man. Doesn't even say who they are. Certainly doesn't seem to indicate that this man had a whole lot to do with... But the object of faith was Christ. The source was Christ. And what do they have in common? They have need. And they have need of restoration. For both of them, life was falling apart. For the woman who was her little girl, for this man, he couldn't hear or speak. Which begs the question, and let me ask you the question as you think about this. Remember I said this is God's personal speech to you. This is God addressing you. Do you see? Do you recognize? Do you acknowledge your need of restoration? Do you understand that you were built and created by God for ultimate reality? There's a reason we all have a vision for what life ought to be like. There's a reason we have a vision for what our families ought to look like. What politics ought to look like. What friendships ought to look like. What work ought to look like. See, we were created for the way things ought to be. And the Bible calls the way things ought to be, shalom. Shalom is what we were created for, and it's what we most desperately need. But what is shalom? There's a writer, his name's Cornelius Plantinga, wrote a book several years ago, and it's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. A breviary of sin. An entity writes in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The Bible says God hates sin, not just because it violates his law or breaks the rules, but more substantively, because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things ought to be. This man is not supposed to be deaf. He's not supposed to be in this much need of communication relationship, intimacy, the ability to give and receive love. Do you recognize all this was lost for him because of his predicament, because of his need? And do you see that God is interested in restoring us holistically? Do you see your need of ultimate reality, your need of restoration? As we sing in the great hymn, Come Ye Sinners, it says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. This he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. If you tarry till you're better, if all you're doing is coming and working so hard, putting so much pressure on yourself, I have to have the perfect family, I have to have the perfect kids, my job has to go perfect, everything has to be perfect, and then maybe I'll be expected. You will never come to Jesus. All the fitness he requires is for you to feel your need of him, and that's what he gives you his spirit to do, to show you your need so that you can do what? And that is to see what Jesus will do. Look with me at the promise of ultimate reality that Jesus brings. Verse 33, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephoptha, that is, be opened. And his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Remember we said earlier, it doesn't matter how you come to Jesus. The only thing that matters is that you come, that you see your need of him and go to him, the object of your faith. And I want you to look at this with me. Jesus knows why is it so important that Jesus be the object of your faith? Because Jesus and Jesus alone knows exactly what we need and exactly how to meet that need. Look with me at how Jesus meets this need. And this is a little bit kind of dumbfound finding a little bit, a little shocking, a little, you know, what's going on here? Think of all the things that Jesus does here. First, he takes him away from the crowd, and he meets with him privately. He gives him personal individual attention, focusing on him. Probably something he has never, ever experienced in his life. Then he puts his fingers in his ears. Then he's spit, sorry, not to be earthy, but I got to stick to the text. He spits on his fingers and puts it on his tongue. And then he says that word, and I've really worked at pronouncing. This is a tough passage to pronounce some of these words, ephaphtha. That's going to sound weird on the on the tape or whatever meaning be opened he does all of these things and commentators ask the question they they kind of puzzle over this going is this kind of like a magical incantation hocus pocus jesus needs to drum up a bunch of superstition and kind of work this out and of course the answer is absolutely not no Because he's doing it this way because this is exactly what this man needs. He is connecting and identifying with this man. Jesus is here. If he gives a vision to his church, his body connected to him, the head, of being a faithful presence of love, look what Jesus is doing. He is modeling. He is being a faithful presence of love to this man's many absences. Look with me at some of the absences this man must have. First of all, the most clear one, right on the face of it all, is his physical abilities. He can't hear and he can't speak. But how do you have, think about this? What's the key to relationships? Not to try to do marriage counseling right now, but husbands, wives, think about this. The key to relationships, you should be able to all say this, communication, right? If you said finances, wrong answer. (laughs) Communication. Communication is the key to relationship, to community, to intimacy. And this man can't hear, and the word for speech impediment means he can't even be, he may be able to utter guttural sounds, but he can't be understood. So in other words, he has the absence of community, the absence of intimacy, the absence of relationship, and Jesus is being present in all of these absences, he's always faithfully present to whatever it is we need. Think about this. We mentioned the Syrophoenician woman that we looked at last week. And to her, Jesus gives all sorts of cryptic answers dogs, crumbs under the children's table. I got to feed the children for children, dogs, feeding. What's going on. She gets it. And here he connects emotionally. He does this, he pulls this man aside privately. And remember the story in John chapter 11, the story of Mary and Martha and the raising of their brother Lazarus. They call Jesus and they say, Jesus, our brother Lazarus is sick. And what is Jesus doing? Talk about not understanding Jesus. He delays. He waits two days before he goes to them. And in the meantime, Lazarus dies. And they both say the same thing to Jesus when he gets there. Jesus, if you had been here, our brother Lazarus would not have died. And to Martha, Jesus gives a lecture, a rebuke. I'm the resurrection and the life. To, to Mary, he weeps. What is going on here? As Isaiah says, Jesus is a wonderful counselor, loving his neighbor, knowing exactly, identifying exactly with what they need. And how does he do it here? Look at how he identifies with the man. The text says, and this part of the text just absolutely floors me, where it says he took him away from the crowd and met with him privately. He noticed him. Imagine how this man has felt all of his life. If we're honest, we've all been down that road before, feeling lonely, alienated, isolated, not noticed, not fitting in. Best illustration I can think of. I know it's we're getting towards the uh, end of school and summer vacation, but first day of school will be coming. Summer's not goes pretty fast, doesn't? It? You ever notice that? And then you'll have the first day of school, and I know I'm hearkening back for some of you to remember a long time ago. Me too, but I want you to think about your first day of school, and especially if you're going to a new school and how scary anxiety-ridden, you can be with that. You go to the first day of school and you walk in at the cafeteria at lunchtime. All sorts of questions have to be brimming and coming up in your mind. What's going through? You know, where do I sit? Will I fit in? Will anybody like me? Will they notice me? Will they make fun of me? Will I fit into this group? Who are my friends? Where can I go? Now imagine this guy. Imagine how he grew up always feeling like an outsider, a spectacle, needing and longing for a relationship. People probably making fun of him if they even noticed him at all. And what does Jesus do? He pulls him aside out of the crowd, gives him focused, individual attention. Why? Because he doesn't just want to heal him. He doesn't just want to fix his bodily flaws. He wants to restore his humanity completely. He is interested in him as an entire and a whole human being. He's interested in him physically. He's interested in him socially. He's interested in him psychologically. But the foundation of it all is spiritually. See, if you want to be whole, it begins with a spiritual foundation. And Tim Keller makes an extremely important point here, that there's a cost to Jesus' identifying with the man. See, we started with he identified and connected with the man physically and emotionally, but the most important identification he makes with the man is a spiritual identification with the man. The text tells us that Jesus looks up to heaven and sighs, which is a moan, a guttural moan and an expression of pain. And Tim Keller makes the point because Jesus is realizing that there is going to be a cost to him to identify with this man. The word that Mark uses in verse 32 for deaf and a speech impediment is the Greek word "magalalon"? Ah, I didn't get it first service. I got it this service. Remember that, ladies? That's why I, I practice during discipleship hour. That word "magalalon," I'm two for two. Is used in Isaiah chapter 35 in the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. In Isaiah chapter 35, we read in Isaiah 35 the scripture I had Al read for us. It says, "Say to those who have an anxious heart." Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Why would Mark do this, use the same word? Dr. Keller makes the point because he wants his readers to connect what's going on here with Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 35. See, what's going on in Isaiah chapter 35 is Isaiah is speaking to Israel in exile. Lost and alienated. And he's saying to them, there is hope. He's saying, God is going to return to you. He's going to come and he's going to save you. He's going to save you from... Your oppressors, and he's going to restore you. And you know what Mark is saying when he connects it? He's saying, Isaiah 35 is happening right now in this person. This is the return of the king, and the king is Jesus. And Dr. Keller makes the point. He says, Notice in the Isaiah text that Isaiah says that this king, when he returns, when he comes back from exile, will come with vengeance, with retribution with recompense. And he says, you get to Mark, and he says, where's the recompense? Where's the vengeance? Where is the retribution? And he writes, the answer is, Jesus didn't come to bring divine retribution because he came to bear it, and to bear it on the cross for us. On the cross, Jesus would identify with us totally. He became mute so that our tongues can be loosed to call him king. Remember Jesus' mission. It is not simply healing. It's not just fixing your bodily flaws. Healing was and always is about restoration. And restoration begins spiritually. It doesn't end there, but it absolutely begins there. So that, as one writer put it, it always was and is, and perhaps supremely so, in Jesus' actions, a sign of God's love breaking in to the painful and death-laden present world. It was and is a pointer to the great healing that will occur when the secret is out, when Jesus is finally revealed to the whole world, and our present stammering praise is turned into full-hearted song. Jesus has come to restore us. He was ascended into heaven. And he left his body on the earth to be the faithful presence of his love in the world, in the context of all the absences, absence of God, absence of relationships with others, with ourselves, and even with the world. Verse 37 says, they see these wondrous works of God, and they were astonished beyond measure. Jesus charged them to be quiet. They blatantly disobeyed him because they could not be quiet. They saw the works of God and they had to sing. How dare us if the gospel has become old hat, that what Jesus has done for us has become something, well, I've accepted Jesus. I'm going to heaven when I die. Now I'm going to just try to be moral, live a good life and stuff like that how dare us that the gospel ever ceases to cause astonishment beyond measure so that we can't help but be a faithful presence of love's singing speaking sometimes just being with people loving our neighbors i think it's time for the church to be the church what do you think let's pray Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you, Jesus, for your coming for us. We pray that we would learn, in one sense, it's simply how to love our neighbors, how to get our eyes off ourselves and begin to connect with others, feel their joys, embrace them in their pain, listen to their doubts, hear their fears, teach us how to love. As Jesus has loved us, teach us how to love our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.